Happy Father's Day to all the dads here today. What an honor it is to be back home at Shades Mountain Baptist Church. Let's go ahead and talk about the suit and the tie and get that out of the way. Been a lot of commentary about that today. Uh, I came to the, the meeting that we had about the worship service, and I was told that I should wear a jacket, but the tie was optional. Then I thought of Neil Bird. And I thought if I came in here casual, Neil would let it go. But if I had the opportunity to stand here and I went as far as to wear the jacket and not the tie and didn't finish, it would have been too frustrating for him to bear. So I went all the way home, Neil, baby. I'm here. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, it's, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We're clapping now that somebody's wearing a tie. Has it come to this? Um, but um, this is actually a Father's Day present. Can that be any more stereotypical that that's my Father's Day present. Thank you very much. Um, you know, today we have a lot to talk about, and, and with it being Father's Day, uh, I want you to know that I thought, with my father, I thought that I was raised normal. I really did. I, I didn't have any idea that the way I was raised as I've gotten you know, older and met other people was not normal. Uh, my dad is a retired football coach. Uh, if he was coaching today, he would be in jail. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, my dad believed that, uh, that no one has ever truly been sick or injured. They are just weak. My dad, when he was a football coach, forbid cramps, and his team didn't have them. I don't know how he did that, but when he watches football now, if a person has cramps, he goes, I see the coach should have covered that. I'll sum it up with this. January of this past year, this is all you need to know about my dad. January of this past year, he turned 77 years old. So I called him up to wish him a happy birthday. He has a very booming voice. He picks up. Yeah. Hey, Pop, which one is this? It's Rick, the oldest. Hey. I said, hey, Pop, I want to wish you a 77th birthday. How's it feel to be 77? He said, let me ask you something. Is Muhammad Ali still alive? No, Dad, he's passed. Okay, then. They ain't a 77-year-old man alive can whip me. <laughs> Undoubtedly, the greatest of all time was all Dad was concerned about. Once we ruled him out, nobody could stand. He would stand in the doorway when we were growing up. I thought this was normal in his underwear. And he would ask us, anybody think they can move me out of this door frame? <laughs> and we'd run at him and he'd knock us down. And, and I thought all that was normal. I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was not normal for your dad to constantly ask you if you thought you could take him. And uh, my mom was actually in the, and I remember the Green Plymouth, my, my, my brother and I were sitting in the back seat. They had an ex-NFL player who got up and gave his testimony at our church. We grew up in Oxford, Alabama, which is, if you're going to Atlanta, it's where you stop to go to the bathroom on 20. So we're in the back seat after the service. My mom trying to, you know, do what a wife and mom should do. So, boys, what did you get out of the message today from that ex-NFL player? And we, I don't remember what we said, but we said a few things. My dad's up there driving. I see him in the rearview mirror, granted face. So, Bill, why don't you tell the boys what you got out of the message today? He said, all I could think, think about was whether he thought he could block me or not. 
So does that sum up dad for you pretty good? So, so that, that is my dad, and that's, that's how I was raised. But, but see, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with, with the man being tough, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. The, the only problem is where, where men are struggling is, is what we have going on right now is there's an attack in our society, and it, it is not subtle. There's an attack in our society right now on masculinity. And, and what the world wants you to believe, and, and this is the adversary and the devil himself, what he's trying to do is he's saying, God made men and women, but there's really no difference in them. And we all do say, praise the Lord, God made it very clear that men and women were made with equal value. Even Christ, through, through the Apostle Paul, keeps telling us, remember, they are your co-heir with Christ. Uh, God says in Genesis chapter 2, I have not created the perfect helper or the perfect partner for, for, for males. I've already created a male, and I don't have it yet, and that's not good. So then he goes on record. He said, I will now create, because I haven't yet, the perfect helper and the perfect partner for man, and he made woman. And then throughout the Scripture, that standard never changes. But what's clear is God made men and women equal but he did not make them same. And society is trying to convince you that he did or whoever created them did. There's really no difference. You can just interchange them, it doesn't matter. And see, that is a lie from the pits of hell and men are totally confused now, completely confused. And it's gotten so bad that, that Andy Blanks and I here, and, and, and we, we, we felt called to, to, to start a, a men's a devotional, a 40-day devotional, and we were talking about what to call it. So we kind of started thinking, you know, if you really want to get somebody's attention, we thought of, of, of the devotional called How to Be a Man. Well, you would have thought, you wouldn't believe the pushback we got on that. Well, you got to be careful about saying you're going to write a book that says How to Be a Man. That's going to be offensive to a lot of men. And I, I tried to be concerned about that for a minute because you know that's my personality. But what, what was missing was the subtitle, The Pursuit of Christ-Centered Masculinity. And I want every man in this room to know that if you ever want to know how to be a man, every example is flawed but one, when God decided to be one. That is a perfect example I would think that's where we need to land. If you want to know how to be a man, how about when God became one? That's the perfect example. And we look for all these other examples, and they're always flawed, but not the example of Jesus. And so we decided to, to take that on. Another thing that's going on with churches. You know, I went and talked to our church and, and some of the men of the church. We started saying, we don't really have a real men's ministry. Most churches don't. Some do, but most don't. You know why? And I talked to a lot of seminary students. I, I talked to them again yesterday at the Gridiron Men's Conference. And if some of our, and I know some of our men were there, today's going to be a little repetitive for you, but probably sitting in the BJCC, you weren't really set up to take notes. So we're going to do it again today, but just take some notes. Because it's hard to do that in an arena setting. And plus, I need to hear it again too. So what we discovered is that at seminary, there's, there's almost this church strategy, which isn't biblical that you really build a church and get you some members by coming up with a good children's program and a good women's program, and you develop that first, then you get a youth program, and then you draw the man in. 
Y'all realize that's not biblical, right? That's the only thing wrong with that strategy. That, that's why most churches have men on the peripheral looking in saying, I see nothing here that speaks to me. That's why you got to have a men's ministry. And I understand that we can't get into this service and, and talk to men the way you have to talk to men because we got children, we got women in here. I'm not talking about here. But, but the church needs to have a, a place just like Ezekiel when God tells Moses three times a year in Ezekiel 38, I want you to get just the men and I want them to come before me and I want to tell them what I expect. Just the men. Don't bring the women. Don't bring the children. So I can talk to them like men because they're not women and they're not children. And you will never disciple a man in any church if you treat him like he's a woman or a child. It'll never happen. Now, he'll say it's okay. He just doesn't change because you're not speaking to him the way God made him. And I believe if we would tell men what Jesus really said about what it looks like to follow Jesus, more of them would want to do it. Because it's not easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it's hard. And I think if we just say that, I think men would say, I'm in. But what we've done is we've taken the message of the gospel and we've lowered it so much and we've lowered the bar so much, men aren't interested in it. Because it looks like just anybody can do it. And I'm going to tell every man in this room this. Until you become a follower of Jesus, you'll never be a man. I can speak to that in my own life. And I'll tell you when that moment happened for me in this very room. You'll never be a man until you become a follower of Jesus. And for those of you who think the women are on the bench today, you're not going to be a very good woman if you're not a follower of Jesus either. He's the example. He's, he, 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 the way he said to live through him is right. So we talk about strength. If you don't believe this, look at what Paul was saying to Ephesus. And, and if you have your Bible, some of your Bible on it, Ephesians 6.10. So he, he's talking uh, to, to the brothers, and he says, Finally, brothers, be strong, what? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. So finally, be strong in the Lord, but where, where, where's the strength? In the Lord. And what you need to do is tap into his strength, not your own. So how do we do that? How do we do that? So what happens to a lot of, of men and women is we start trying to do it our way, and we're going to depend on our strength until we finally run into something we can't handle, then we call him in. And it will radically change your life if you'll just go ahead and submit to his authority and say, you're right, I'm not, you have the answers, I don't, and, and let Jesus transform your life. Look what Jesus himself said. You know, a lot of times, in, in, uh, in when I was talking to Andy, Andy's a former Marine, I, 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 let, I met a lot of Marines yesterday, and we love their slogan, the few, the proud, the Marines. They didn't come up with that, by the way. If, if you look at the, original, the first time it was said about the few, it was by Jesus in Matthew 7, 13, 14. Now, I know we've heard this verse a lot, but I, wanna, I want you to really unpack it today. So Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, meaning that's, if we're going to follow him, that's where we're going. He said, because the gate is wide and the way is easy, but it leads to destruction. See, there, there's a lot of men and women in this room, and you want to be on the easy road. You don't want it to be hard. The only problem is when you're on that road, according to our Lord and Savior, you're on the road to destruction. And so are most people. I'm going to say that again. So are most people. 
A third time, most people are on the road to destruction, and if you want to know if you are, it's a road that's easy and wide to navigate. There's nothing difficult about it. That's what Jesus said. And, and, and one of the things that you think about, look, we'll talk about persecution here in a minute. Think about things like that. If you look at what, what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12, you remember what he said? He said, hey, Timothy, give the church a heads up. Anybody who chooses to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not they might, they will be. So can I ask you this as my brothers and sisters in Christ? Where's your persecution? If you don't have any, the Bible says it's probably because you don't live a godly life. Your standard's low. And nobody's bothered by it. Satan surely ain't concerned about you. I mean, you do realize Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent like our, 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 our God. So he can't be everywhere. He's only got a third of the angels. So he's not going to spend time in places of no impact. Because why? So I love when people say, man, I just think the devil's really giving me a hard time. And most of the time, no, you're just giving you a hard time. Usually my problems revolve around my own sinful desires. I don't know that I rank the attention of Satan since he can't be everywhere. A lot of the things we blame on demons and on Satan, it's just our own deal. It's our own fallen state, and it had not been transformed by Jesus. And we'll get to that. So then, then Jesus talks about what it looks like to enter by that narrow gate. Look what he says now. He says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let me say that again. So if I'm following Jesus, Jesus Christ said, I will be on a narrow path and it will be hard and I'll be only one of a few who ever do it. I wish you could have seen the discussion that we had, we started getting strategic about having a real men's ministry here. And, and, and for the last a little a lot, over two years, we've actually put into effect a real men's ministry here, discipling men from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, but we don't chase after the drama queens. If you don't want to do it, fine. But I tell you what you'll never say again, it's not available to you. And, and what we're going to do is disciple the people who actually want to be discipled from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Yes, we come to Christ in a childlike faith, but hey, brothers, look at me. But we don't live a childlike walk. Some of you desperately need to grow up spiritually. You're still a spiritual child. You're an infant. And that's why you get destroyed, and that's why your house is a wreck, and that's why you don't have any impact for the kingdom. And it's at some point you've got to decide you want to change that. But it will require you taking some effort and actually treating it as important as you treat all the other things that are actually important to you. See, it's possible for you to say one thing and live another. Let me tell you what's not possible for you to say one thing and, and it, for you to actually believe something and then live something different. That's not possible. You can say one thing and not live it. But how about this? Whatever you actually live is what you actually believe. The Bible's so clear about that. You want to know how somebody is in their spiritual walk? Just watch them. And you know what else Jesus said? Don't expect there to be a lot of people that are followers of Jesus. There might be a lot of believers of Jesus, but there's not a lot of followers of Jesus. You know what the biggest problem with most people in this room is? You're just lost. And you just can't come to that conclusion. I don't know if it's arrogance. I don't know if it's pride. But how about this? You just need to examine your life. And if you have not been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, something is wrong because listen to what you're saying. 
And I had to come to this conclusion. Listen to what you're saying. If you are living in open sin, and sin is still prevalent in your life, and there's been no victory over it, you know what you're saying? Jesus isn't strong enough to change me. The Holy Spirit doesn't have enough power to transform me. If you can comfortably live like that, it could be you don't have the Holy Spirit. And the Bible's very clear about that. I mean, if you look at the church of Acts, there's a time when Peter's standing in front of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he says, what we're doing, the reason why we won't stop doing what we're doing is that we have the Holy Spirit, and God only gives the Holy Spirit to those who, who obey Him. Meaning, if someone doesn't obey Christ, they don't have the Holy Spirit. We're doing a, a study on the Wednesday Bible study as part of the Men of Shades right now, the one that the, the guys I've been with for the last few years over at our studio. And you're certainly welcome to join us every Wednesday at noon, noon, and we even put it out on SoundCloud. We put it out on podcast. It's available to you, man. Take advantage of it, even if you can't be there. And one thing we're discovering is, as usual as human beings, we've taken the standard of, and the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit, and we've dumbed it down. What do men do, and women, but what do men usually do? We compare ourselves to the disciples before Pentecost. We love to do that. Well, you know, I'm a lot like Peter. You know, he said he was in with Jesus, but he denied him three times. He didn't deny him after Pentecost. And you know what? You live on the other side of Pentecost. I live on the other side of Pentecost. They behaved poorly before the resurrection. They didn't didn't behave poorly after they received the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, you couldn't do anything with them. They would not compromise Christ. And they were persecuted greatly. And when they were persecuted, they didn't pray for the persecution to pass them by. They prayed that they would be even more bold and they wouldn't embarrass Jesus while they were being persecuted. Look at at Acts chapter 5. Now in Acts chapter 5, what we just had was Ananias and Sapphira. You know, Tony Evans, who I had a chance to be on the bill with him this weekend. I love the teachings of Tony. Tony makes a great point. He said, if you ever want to see how God truly feels about something, if you want to truly know his standard in its purest, look in Scripture the very first time he ever deals with it. That's good. He said the rest of Scripture is referring back to the original commentary from God, like we talked about with marriage. You want to know how God feels about marriage? Look at the first time he established it. And then everything else in the Scripture refers back to that standard. So now we're looking at when he established what? The church. Y'all realize, don't you, that the church of Acts and the churches of the New Testament, that's our ancestors. That's our example. So Ananias and Sapphira decide they're going to try to get the accolades and the applause of Barnabas. Because at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas says, I've sold some land, I'm going to give all of it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira said, oh yeah, we sold some land too, and we're going to give all of it to the church, but they didn't. They kept some back. Now before we get to what we're going to look at right here in, in, in 5, Peter makes an interesting comment that confirms what I just told you about the Holy Spirit. He says, I I can't believe, I'm paraphrasing, that you were able to do this so methodically and so intentionally, and and, and Satan convinced you to lie to the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying? How can you have the Holy Spirit and have done this? This didn't bother you? We've asked you if you did it. There was your chance to repent. You've doubled down and said, nope, this is how much we're giving. We're giving all of it. But you know you didn't. How could you and your wife be in the presence of the Holy Spirit like the rest of us? It's radically changed us, and this didn't bother you, and God killed them. Church discipline goes on record as being very severe and important. Why? Because they were pretending to be one of the church, but they really weren't. 
They were a scam. They were fake. And the Bible is, 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 is very clear. It's much different for a lost person who says, I don't know anything. I'm lost. I want to learn. Hey, come on in. Let's teach you. You don't know any better. Lost people should act like lost people. But the Bible says God is much, much different when someone claims to be one of his and is living a lie. That's much different. And you know what he says over and over? you got to get those people out of the church body. they got to go. You know, I, I, had to, I, had to be, I had to come to a meeting. It was all right. The first time we ever had man church, which we do every quarter, where the men go out just like in, in Ezekiel, and the men sit there, and we talk to each other like men, and we hash things out. The first one, we were dealing with the men of our church, and I got up, and I felt like the Holy Spirit told me to say this. I said, this church would be better right now if we threw some of y'all out. That went over great. But you know what? You know what happened after it was over? Stacks of testimonies after the first man church. People have been going to church here for over 20 years. Said, I went home and dealt with the sin in my life. Wow. So that's what the Bible says. If you'll actually deal with people in their open sin and, and pay a price for it or, or throw them out of the church, if they won't come around when you keep coming to them and they're just going to keep blaspheming Christ and blaspheming the church, if you'll actually turn them over to it, it may just save their life and they'll finally repent. It's almost like the Bible knows what it's talking about. But you don't see that much in the, in the American church. Now, you see it around the world, but you don't see it much in the American church. And, and, and God said it was very serious. And when they died, when God killed Ananias and Sapphira, you know who got to bury them? Just whoever was young enough to carry their bodies. They, 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 they literally say in Acts chapter 5, hey, get the young people to carry these bodies off. We, we don't even vet these people out. You're strong enough to carry a body, take it. Oh, they don't make that old man do this. But, but I want you to take your Bible and, and just flip over to Acts chapter 8, verse 2. If you have your Bible. So we know how Ananias and Sapphira were buried. But let's go over to Acts chapter 8. And let's look what it says about Stephen. Now remember, Stephen, he was so full of the Holy Spirit again that even when they were gnashing their teeth and plugging their ears and they were ready to kill him, he never backed down. And we know that Stephen stood there while they were stoning him, and he looked up and he saw our Lord and Savior standing at the right hand of God, not sitting, standing at the right hand of God, saying, Stephen, what you are doing, and how, you are not embarrassing me while you die, and the way you're dying is going to impact this guy over here holding everybody's jackets where they can hold better, uh, where they can throw better. I got a great ministry for him, and I need you to die this way to bring honor to me. I'm giving you a standing ovation, and the stoning did not stop. And when he died, after being persecuted and never backed down, was so bold for Christ, he even died pointing people to Jesus and asked that they be forgiven by Jesus because they didn't know what they were doing to impact Saul from Tarsus that is standing there holding everyone's jacket so they can throw harder. Look what happened when he was buried in chapter 8, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Couldn't just anybody bury Stephen. We had to go find devout men because he was a man of honor in the church. He was a man who spoke the word of God boldly to the point that people killed him. And he's one of our heroes. Let me ask you, man, how are we going to bury you? Hey, just whoever can carry him off. Hey, 
hey, tell your mama to go find some guys that can carry that casket. Or will we actually sit down and discuss it? Hey, we don't just need to have anybody carry your casket because of the impact you've had for the kingdom of God. For the kind of husband, the kind of father, and the kind of follower of Jesus you have been, we will make much lamentation over you. Or we just get some young guys to haul you off. Which one will it be? You know, back to Acts chapter 5. So after this happened, we see that it's documented another gut check for us. It says, after Sapphira and Ananias were killed by God for their, uh, their blasphemy of the church, it said, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together at Solomon's portico, but don't miss 13. None of the rest dared to join them, but people held, held them in high esteem. We all know these people, don't we? And let me go ahead and tell you, if you decide to be a devout follower of Jesus Christ, please don't expect everybody to go with you. Not even in the church. Hey, we're pulling for you. Are, are you going to join me? Oh, no, no. We're going to stand over. Hey, we hold you in high esteem. And when you get pummeled by the movements or the government or those who hate Jesus, know that we hold you in high esteem. Are you going to join me? No. I've seen how people respond to followers of Jesus on this topic. You're on your own. Which one are you? Are you bold for Jesus where, where you'll go out and say, you know what, I'm going to stand on Jesus' truth and, and let whatever persecution come because he's the standard and nobody, nobody comes against Jesus. Not my friends, not my workplace, not the government, which we'll get to in a minute, not some movement, and look at me right here, not even my own family. No one blasphemes Christ. Because I'm here living for an applause of the audience of one. I want to see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. I don't want to look around and see the whole world cheering for me for, for how understanding I've been or, or how, how gracious I was or how mild I was or how I, I lived to fight another day. And they're all clapping for me and I turn around and Jesus isn't. We're living for an audience of one. And certainly, certainly, we want to be sure that persecution comes against us because of our devotion to Christ, not because we're jerks. That, that is different. But if it's a devotion to Jesus Christ and you will not compromise him because he said, anyone who proclaims me before men, I will proclaim before the Father, and anybody who doesn't, I won't. I would tell you that society would look a lot different that we're living in right now if the people of Christ would, would stand up where you are and say, you know what, come what may, we're not going to compromise Jesus. I, I think it would look a lot different. But you know why it doesn't look different? Hey, time and place, man. Well, when is the time? When is the place? Well, I'm going to go to church Sunday and I'm going to raise my hands. Oh, yeah, a lot of persecution in here. What about out there where people are dying and going to hell. You do realize the Bible says that people who are living in open sin and are blaspheming Christ, that they will not be part of the kingdom of God. It's a pretty big deal. And if you've compromised Christ in order to get ahead, what good is it? I mean, what if I could, I could go back tomorrow, 
and solve two problems in my life by compromising Jesus. But what good would it be? Hey, it would show be on in bigger markets. Right? For what? Well, tell a few laughs. If I'm, if I'm not going to be advancing the kingdom of God, what good is it? I mean, if the Rick and Bubba show ends tomorrow and we did not move the kingdom of God forward and we compromise Christ, it has been a monumental waste of time. Do you think God placed you where you are as, if you claim to be one of his followers just to kind of get along to go along? What good is it? When we stand before God, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how many, you know, if you say you're a coach, how many ball, my dad's a coach, he retired, he's great, how many ball games you won, it's going to be how many people did you impact for the kingdom. And we're always ready to compromise things to, to get some kind of worldly gain, but when you do that, what good is it? The church of Acts was very clear on this, staying in chapter 5, but now going to verse 29. So Peter and the apostles were told, look, we're going to leave you alone if you just shut up about Jesus. That's it. Just be quiet about Jesus and we'll leave you alone. Stop telling everybody that we crucified him. Stop telling everybody that his blood's on our hands. Stop telling us that, that everything that we've always believed is wrong, that Jesus has fulfilled all this, and the only way we can get redemption is through Jesus Christ. Because that's what Peter just said. Every time Peter, every time the apostles were persecuted, you know what they did? They preached. You realize what's just happened here. They've been put in jail. An angel let them out of jail. And you know what the angel didn't say? Now head to the lake for the rest of the week. Take some time off. You know what the angel said when he let them out of jail? Go back to the temple and do exactly what you were doing. They got you put in jail. And it says they got there before the sun came up. Doing it again. So they, and you know what the people were saying that were in charge? You know what the world was saying? What are we going to do with them? Do they say that about us? Do you really see the world in this country we live in just fretting over what we're going to do with the church? What are we going to do with the church? No. You know why? We don't bother anybody. We're not bold. We'll compromise the minute something gets to who? Everybody's mad at me. Got some bad emails. People talking about me on social media. Hey, let me assure you, if you're doing it right, that's going to happen. Look, let me tell you something you need to learn. The fact that some people don't like you means you're on the right track. If everybody likes you, you've done something that compromised the gospel. You should only be concerned if you're being affirmed by the people of the faith that you know are solid. If lost people are people who are, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees of today, if they don't like you, that's good. Just be sure that Christ is, is, is proud of you. They didn't pray for persecution to stop. They prayed they wouldn't embarrass Jesus. So here's what Peter says to them after they give them the mandate. You know what he says? But Peter and the apostles answered, meaning they all were on the same page. We must obey God rather than man. We don't move. We follow the law until the law is in conflict with what God said to do. If, if, if the world says you must, you must confirm and condone and say this is okay or we're going to put you in jail, then go to jail. If you don't stop with Jesus, you're not going to be able to work here. Then don't work there. He says, I've got to, when it, I'm going to obey, I'm going to be a good citizen, I'm going to behave, but once 
It is required of me to keep a job, to stay out of jail, whatever the case may be. And the only way I can do that is to compromise Christ. I will not do it because I answer to him. I'm one of his. I follow Jesus. I don't just believe in Jesus. A lot of people believe in Jesus. Even demons believe in Jesus. And they got him right before Pentecost. But they rebel against Jesus. They're not followers of Jesus. They don't do what, you know, a true disciple of Jesus, I want to give you a Calhoun County, Rick Burgess definition. A disciple of Jesus does what Jesus says to do and says what Jesus says to say. And then lets the chips fall where they may. I told you about my dad. Paul talked about this and being transformed in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Paul's talking about he's wanted this thorn to be released from him, and, and the Lord hadn't done it. Now, some of you believe in a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I guess Paul didn't have enough faith. He prayed diligently for whatever this thorn was to be removed, and God did not remove it. Why? He tells us. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He said, Lord, do whatever you have to do to make me so weak that I will finally be strong. Because, as Paul said at Ephesus, the only strength that any of us have, brothers and sisters, is completely weak before the Lord saying, you make me strong. I submit to your authority. Transform me with the power of the Holy Spirit. And may my strength be found only in you. If you remember 10 years ago, Sherry and I, had to go through the, the tough battle of burying our two-and-a-half-year-old son. And, and I remember vividly sitting at the little farmhouse where we were trying to decide whether we were ever going to move back home or not. And, and, and I, I knew I had to go back on the air, and I didn't know how I was going to do that. I didn't really know what to do. We had come through a lot, but now, you know, the, the, the days are passing, and now you get, you're going back to what you were doing. I'm like, Lord, surely you don't expect me to go back on the air. I'm sitting here trying to put my shoes on. I can't even tie my shoes. I, I can't tie my shoes. All my arrogance, all my pride, all my earthly, fleshly strength was gone. And I just needed Christ to breathe. I just needed Christ to tie my shoes. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, now you're ready. Your problem has never been that you weren't strong enough. You know how my daddy raised me. Your problem is, Rick, you've never been weak enough. And I have done what I needed to do to make you so weak that you're asking me to help you tie your shoes. Now you're ready. Now you're ready. I was in here doing the memorial service. I didn't know I was going to do it. Danny was supposed to do it. And Danny was sitting here and I was sitting there. And I came up here and I said, I'll just do whatever the Holy Spirit told me to do. My father was here. 
I remember seeing his granite face and powerful man that he is sitting there. And when it was over, they were going to take us right here over to the fellowship hall. There's one of these two aisles. I think it was this one because we were sitting there. And my dad was over here. My dad has this booming voice. And as they were trying to usher us up the aisle right here in this room, when I learned how to be a man, I heard my dad's voice, hey, hey. And I turned across here and I looked at him about where the Dysons are sitting. And he looked at me and he said, now that's a man. Hey, hey, that's really a man right there. That's what a man is. And in that moment, standing in this room, my dad and I looked at each other and at the same time, we finally understood what it meant to be a man. And it was to be weak and so weak that you ride in step with Jesus Christ. A real man is a follower of Jesus and does whatever Jesus asked him to do. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this time of response and decision, I pray, Lord, that in the power of the Holy Spirit across this room, I know there have been hearts that have been pierced, and I know that there needs to be some decisions made. And Lord, as you, as you offer up this altar to those who need to respond right now, come to this altar and deal with whatever need they need to deal with. Lord, please, I pray, I pray the Holy Spirit be so powerful that anybody who needs to come forward right now will be miserable if they don't. Lord, the only thing I've ever learned has never been in comfort. The things you've taught me have always been through discomfort. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. To your feet, please. Here's what we're going to do. This altar is open. I would love to see every single man in this room because if this church is going to go where God wants it to go, the men of this church have, have, have got, to, we're all called to the same standard, but the men are supposed to lead that standard. That, that's biblical. And we're going to be held accountable for the state of our families, the state of our wives, and the state of this church. And we're going to offer a song for this altar to be open. And I wish you'd step off your pride a minute, no matter where you are. And I would love to see the men of this church cover up this altar. Now, ladies, if you need to make a decision for Jesus today, there's something you need to pray about, certainly come forward. Maybe you need to come here and pray over your husband. I don't know. But we're going to offer, offer up this altar. And, and, we're, and we're going to be standing down here, and this altar is available to you to make a decision for Jesus, to come get on your face about maybe something you were convicted by by his word today. Maybe there's something you need to deal with. Maybe you just want, to, you want everyone to see you be bold about your faith and come here. We're also going to have some of the members of the staff will be down here. I'll be down here if you need to talk to us. And this altar is open as we sing. And if God has prompted you to step out and come forward right now publicly and get on your face before the Lord, I'm going to encourage you to do so. Step out right where? Who's first? Step out. Let's go. Let's go.